Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. And boy... It's going to be an action-packed Peter King podcast this week. Post-wildcard round, pre-divisional playoff round with so much happening around the National Football League. Three guests. Number one, Charlie Weiss, the former New England Patriots offensive coordinator, the first coach of Tom Brady uh, in New England in 2000, knows Brady, knows Bill Belichick very well, We'll talk about the present and the future of both Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. Then Joe Person, longtime chronicler of the Carolina Panthers, now works for The Athletic. He'll talk about the groundbreaking hire and contract with Matt Rule, the new coach of the Panthers. And then finally, Jane Slater of NFL Network. She does a great job covering the Dallas Cowboys. And she will talk about Dallas importing Mike McCarthy from Green Bay as the new head coach. But first, just a few thoughts, not only on what we've seen this week, but on something that I believe that the NFL really needs to pay attention to. So in past weeks, I've sort of railed against uh, the NFL's minority hiring. And um, I think this week, just shows a lot of what is wrong with the system in two ways, not just with minority hiring, but also with when the NFL does its hiring cycle. So recently, a general manager in the league, a highly respected general manager in the league, was talking to me about his fear for the postseason, and his team was a playoff contender when we talked. And I said, he said, you know, I'm a little bit afraid of January. And I said, why would you be afraid of January? And he said, because I know I'm going to have a couple of guys on my, on our coaching staff who are going to get interest out there in the NFL community as far as hiring coaches. And I've seen this before. And what happens is they're going to be on the phone with their buddies seeing about assembling a staff so that when they go into these interviews, they can say, hey, I've already got a staff that that I think I'm going to be able to bring with me because that's what new owners, new presidents of teams want to find out when they sit down with coaches. And so that takes time away from preparing for our games. I think that's part of it. And then I think the second part of it is I think it's inherently unfair to coaches who coach late in the playoffs. For instance, look at what happened to any candidates on Baltimore in San Francisco uh, this year. In Baltimore, for instance, everybody said, wow, Greg Roman, great coaching candidate. Maybe Wink Martindale, good coaching candidate. The offensive and defensive coordinators there. And then in San Francisco, uh, with the rise of Robert Sala, 
uh, as the defensive coordinator there. Obviously, none of those guys have gotten jobs. And one of the reasons they haven't gotten jobs is because teams know that they can't employ them until their team is out of the playoffs. So they say, hey, look, we want to get a jump start on this right now. And we could argue all day about how jump starts is not as important as making sure you get the right guy. But I truly believe this is something the NFL has to look at and look at fast. It's not only unfair to coaches, but it's unfair to teams in the playoffs currently because they're not getting undivided attention from their guys who are trying to get head coaching jobs. And finally, I'll just end with one more thought. I've talked about the minority coach issue in the past, and I'll tell you this. It really bothers me right now that, that and again, look, it's not over, and Eric Bieniemy could get a job. Robert Sala could get a job. Uh, David Shaw, the Stanford coach, probably isn't going to get a job, but he absolutely should get hearing uh, or, or, or a hearing from some uh, teams in the NFL. And I just repeat, that the NFL right now, which has four minority coaches, four, and that includes a Hispanic coach in Ron Rivera and three African-American coaches, in a league that is 70 to 75% black with black players, I just think it is a not only a horrible look, but I see no continuing current effort by the league office. None, zero lip service only. That's all I see about the African-American coaching issue in the NFL. Uh, the NFL just simply has not done a good enough job in this. And I'll just leave you with one reminder. In 2016, the Philadelphia Eagles hired Kansas City offensive coordinator Doug Peterson. And the next season, he was in, in 2017, he had the Eagles winning a Super Bowl. Then in 2018, the Chicago Bears hired Matt Nagy, the Kansas City offensive coordinator. And Matt Nagy was coach of the year that first year, went 12-4, and four, and the Bears very unexpectedly won the NFC North. And now the next offensive coordinator on the Andy Reid tree, Eric Bieniemy, sits apparently going to be bypassed again. And again, there's one job left, the Cleveland Browns job. But it looks like he's going to be bypassed once again. And all I'm saying is there is something wrong with this picture. And now my conversation with former Notre Dame coach and former New England Patriots assistant, Charlie Weiss. Happy to be joined on the podcast by Charlie Weiss. Obviously, the offensive coordinator of the New England Patriots for five years in Tom Brady's first five years, by the way, and later the coach of Notre Dame. Uh, Charlie, thanks for joining me. I guess I'll start with this. Were you at all surprised the other night when Tom Brady left it open that he might be willing to play somewhere else? No, I think he was, I thought he was just being pretty matter of fact. I think that he was just being very, giving a very pragmatic, trying not to be emotional, just giving a very pragmatic uh, response. You know, let's face it, everyone, including Tommy, would prefer 
this end with, you know, Tommy in New England. But well, let's say, for example, that, you know, the Patriots were to offer Tommy, you know, $20 million a year and uh, the L.A. Chargers offered him $40 million a year. Well, I mean, that's, you know, $40 million, $20 million, let's do the math. I mean, I mean, there's always a possibility, you know, that if, if, if something like that were to occur, that, that that could happen. But, you know, hopefully, you know, hopefully that's not the way it works out. You know, it was interesting. After talking to him, I got the very strong feeling that he'd be very open to playing somewhere else. I believe he just wants to have a better chance to win with a better offense in 2020 than he had in 2019. I think this year he was very frustrated by the offense around him. I agree with you. He was very frustrated, and I could tell that. I could tell that every time he'd come off the field and sit on the bench. Hey, look, at, I know the kid's body language, you know. And I know I know the words he's saying on the sideline because a lot of those a lot of those four letter words he's blaming me on. He said that before he met me he never used to use four letter <laughs> words. So uh I could see the frustration. I, I could see the frustration on the sideline when he comes off the field. I could see it sometimes when he's looking at a young receiver where he throws a pass that looks like a crummy pass when obviously it was a route that was that was that was busted by somebody. And I could see him look on the field like, just look with that face like you got to be kidding me. So, yeah, I think that he was probably as frustrated as I've seen him in quite some time. Charlie, you also know Bill Belichick very well. And the one thing about Bill Belichick is that he's not going to be emotional. He's not going to be nostalgic about a decision like this. You saw that with Bernie Kosar. 25 years ago in Cleveland. You saw that with Drew Bledsoe in 2001. What, just your gut feeling, what do you think is going through Belichick's mind right now? Well, I think that this is a, a little bit of an unusual situation because although it's Belichick's call because Mr. Kraft lets Belichick make these calls, you know, he, Belichick understands that, you know, that all three of them, have hit, you know, the, that icon level. Kraft as an owner, Belichick as a coach, and Tommy as the quarterback and leader of, you know, probably the greatest dynasty in, in pro football history. And I think that he 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 is sensitive of sensitive of all those situations. But at the end of the day, you know, Bill does make decisions based on you know, on, on business decisions. You know, there is obviously some subjectivity in there, a little fluctuation, but, you know, Lloyd Malloy, you know, gone. You know, Drew Bledsoe, gone. You know, Richard Seymour, Dan Branch, all those guys, either traded away or gone. You know, uh, Mike Vrabel, you know, traded, you know, and, and Matt Castle traded away. I mean, you know, he, you know, at the end of the day, he's going to do things that he thinks that the team needs to do business-wise to be successful in both the near term and down the road. Do you have much of a gut feeling, absolute gut feeling, how much longer Bill Belichick will coach as a head coach in pro football? 
I'm going to tell you a funny story. Uh, he's, you know, Bon Jovi got inducted into the Hall of Fame two two years ago, and we're in Cleveland. And you know, we you know when when we worked together, we were really close. And you know, Bill was was always very very good to my family and was very cordial with my wife. And and on that night, we didn't sit next to our significant others. We sat across from them. So I was next to, you know, I was next to Linda, you know, um, uh, Bill's girl, and, you know, Bill was next to Maura, my my girl. And during the night, you know, I talked to Linda, and he talked to he talked to Maura because it was a long, a long table. And during that conversation, you know, Bill said, you know, how 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 happy he was coaching, how much he loved coaching, how proud he. He was of, of what everyone's doing in New England, and one little wrinkle that people forget—you know—he's got two two of his kids working with him every day. You know, he's got Stephen and Brian there every day, and as any parent would know, anytime you could steal your kid more time with your kids, you know, after they got out of college, and you get every day you get to stay with them is is like is like gold. It's priceless. And he gets to go into work every day and help develop his two kids into being better, better, better people and coaches. And I think it's a great opportunity. I think he actually loves what he's doing. Yeah, I agree. There's no sign, whatever. Chris Sims said this, I don't know, to me last year or the year before, that that Bill Belichick is, is exactly the same on May 11 as he is on January 11. You know, there's there's no... There's no tension. There's no pressure. He he just he's the same every day, no matter what he's doing. And and if he's not feeling this intense pressure, why would he not want to do this? Oh, I think he does. You know, that's the whole thing. I think he does. I think he clearly wants to do it. And and I I don't see any reason I don't see any reason he's going to stop. I don't see him stopping anytime soon. I really don't. You know, most people will say, well, he's getting his, you know, mid to upper 60s. You know, it's long. I mean, he really loves doing it. He's happy doing it. Okay. He's proud of, of what, he, what he's accomplished. And he's built this thing. He's built this thing where he's prided himself on staying ahead of the Joneses as being one step ahead of everyone by using, his, you know, his great foresight into always being able to look down the road. Uh, I think that, you know, I I can't see him any stop stopping anytime soon. You know, one other thing sort of about Bill, he has this ruthless streak in him, which obviously you know about. I think a lot of people would say, well, geez, maybe he was ruthless with other guys, but with Tom Brady, really with Tom Brady, especially because he and Brady seem to get along. So I don't want to know. I don't know if it's famously, but they get along well, obviously. Is there anything different about parting ways with Tom Brady? Actually, no. I mean, uh, I don't think that – I don't think he looks – him parting ways with Tommy Brady for Bill is going to be any different than any other player than Devin McCourty. I mean, I think they're, they're to him, you know, it, it, it's pretty much the same, and he – he tries to stay even keel about that. Now, he is a historian, as you know, and he understands the ramifications of, 
you know, whenever whenever Tommy were to leave New England, whether it's on his own accord or because you know because they you know they weren't bringing him back, but you know, he understands the historical ramifications of that. But at the end of the day, I think he kind of treats everyone, you know, pretty much the same and stern and fairly. And don't you think there's something inside Bill Belichick who said that says? It'd be kind of fun to invent something from scratch now, the next iteration of the New England Patriots. You know, that's what everyone wants to say. You know, everyone wants to talk about, you know, hey, don't you think Tommy would like to play without Belichick? And don't you think Belichick would like to, you know, coach without Tommy? Well, how have they done together? I mean, it's been a pretty good combination. So if I were those guys... You know, I'd, as, long, as long as this ship could keep sailing, I would keep on sailing that ship. <laughs> yeah, but whenever the ship can't sail anymore, Belichick is still going to want to be the captain. Well, that's right. But, uh, hey, do I think – do I think that – do I th- – hey, look, it's a very big ego-driven sport, as we know. We all have big egos. The assistant coaches always think that they're better than they are. I was one of them. I always thought I was better than what I was. Head coaches think they're they're better than what they are. You know, owners, players, everyone has a high opinion of themselves. But what they've masterfully been able to do, and Bill gets credit for this one, has been able to put you know put those egos aside and just have with a goal of winning, you know, winning championships. You know, going to the forefront. They've been able to do that better than anyone of all time. Charlie Weiss, really good talking to you. Thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast this week. All right. Take care, Peter. And now my conversation with Joe Person, who covers the Carolina Panthers for The Athletic on a crazy, crazy week for the franchise in Charlotte. Happy to be joined on the podcast by Joe Person of The Athletic. Uh, He's a chronicler of the Carolina Panthers, did so for many years uh, with the Charlotte Observer. And a little little factoid about Joe Person that you might not have known. A college football teammate of Mike Tomlin. So let's hear that story, Joe Person. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, (laughs) Mike, Mike and I were at William & Mary together. For a couple of years, he, uh, as he will will tell you, was uh, much more of a student of the game than I was. Uh, I was a tight end. He was a wide receiver. So we were in a lot of the the same offensive meetings. And, uh, yeah, he was was an intense individual then, uh, but not quite like he is today. But he was uh, he, he showed up on campus. He was a pretty undersized wide receiver from the Norfolk Newport News area, and uh, you know, real real good player, and obviously a real good coach, and one who overlapped with, as you know, Peter Sean McDermott, also at William and Mary. I missed McDermott by a year, but uh, I, I appreciate you, you shining some light on uh, Tribe Nation. Well, let's get into the events of the week, which sort of blew up the internet on Tuesday, and that is the fact that the Carolina Panthers 
have hired and signed Matt Rule to a seven-year contract, which Adam Schefter reported is worth in the vicinity of $60 million. I guess, first of all, you hear that, and were you as blown away as I was? Not necessarily by the hire, but by the commitment. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think we all have, have talked about money not being an issue for David Tepper, and and it really shouldn't or hasn't been an issue for a lot of these owners, obviously. But, but Tepper's kind of the new guy in the club. Uh, I think he showed a lot of things with this hire and, and, and with those those numbers and, and the, the length of commitment is that, you know, he's kind of, in some respects, he's going to play by his own rules when it comes to creating or trying to create a winning product here in Sherman. And, you know, you've been doing it a heck of a lot longer than I have, but he, he pretty much kind of blew the top off of it, uh, certainly with, with the seven years. And, uh, and I think the other thing that shows is that, you know, Matt Rule is going to be given, uh, you know, this is feeling almost like a, a teardown and rebuild. That, that And Tepper met with us in December when, he, when, when Ron Rivera was fired, and he's kind of strongly hinted or suggested at, at, at this kind of plan and approach in that meeting, uh, someone had mentioned uh, like it just sort of in a, a question had thrown out like a five-year timeline. And would you want to be more successful or, or more quickly successful than, than five years? And, and Tepper said, Hey, I would hope our fan base would be able to see the big picture and could live with, uh, you know, a couple years of, of, you know, heartache and headaches if it meant long-term, sustain success and i think that you know obviously you know three years down the road matt rules winning four or five games a year then this would be a different conversation but i think i think he i think this shows everyone first of all like i said that tepper has plenty of money and he's not afraid to spend it because you know he also had to pay a pretty sizable buyout but then also just that that David Tepper is going to do his thing in terms of giving Matt Rule a, a long leash and, and letting him get established here. You know, what really occurred to me when this happened is that David Tepper kind of broke the mold of, of how owners deal with coaches at, at, at any level. I mean, to hire a college coach when obviously the college coach, college coaches who've come to the NFL have at best a checkered record. I, this is a tremendous show of faith by David Tepper. No doubt about it. And, it, it, you know, it, I, I wrote a column, Peter, this week that on Tuesday that just kind of got at how Tepper sort of made these sorts of bets in the business world and uh, you know that he he was a guy has has always been a guy as you know with Appaloosa Trust Company his hedge fund he kind of zigs when when everyone else is zagging and kind of goes against the grain and obviously Matt Rule isn't you know didn't come out of nowhere of course the Giants were, were poised and prepared to 
to hire him as well. But but like you said, this is not uh, Pete Carroll. Uh, this is not Jim Harbaugh, guys who had had success, uh, even Jimmy Johnson, Barry Switzer, guys who had been at big college programs and, and had had big-time success at those programs. You know, yes, Baylor's in the Big 12, I get it, but, you know, he basically had one really strong season there. But but I think what Tepper saw is, and, and be, be, will be interesting to hear from him directly, but clearly he feels the Panthers are in rebuild mode. And that is Matt Rule's M.O. I mean, he did it at Temple. Uh, you know, takes them from like one or two wins his first year. And before you know it, they're winning their the, the first uh, AAC conference title has them in a couple bowl games. And then the same thing at Baylor. They are reeling from the, the horrible sexual assault scandal from, from the Bryles era. Uh, you know, where there was the one, obviously the Jim Grove bridge year in between, but then the same thing with Matt Rule at Baylor. I mean, I think they won. He, he became the first Power 5 program, coach of a Power 5 program, to go from 11 losses in a single season to 11 wins within a two-year span. And I think that, I think, I think that more than anything, you know, it was what, uh, was what Tepper kind of latched on to. And, 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 an, and an innovative offensive guy and a guy who also kind of has some of that old school discipline Tepper has talked about. I mean, I think it all added up uh, to, to in Tepper's mind an attractive package, but certainly as you said, Peter, it, it, this is a big time gamble, big time bet on a guy, you know, who has one year of NFL experience as an assistant line coach on his resume. The other thing that I find interesting about this is that people are talking about a seven-year contract. Oh, my God, they're committed to this guy and all that. Look, if they go 4-12, 4-12, and 3-13, and Matt Rule's not going to be around for the fourth year. He's going to get paid off. And uh, not that I think that's going to happen, but it's not like he's guaranteed to coach this team for the next seven years. No, absolutely not. And It'll be real interesting kind of, you know, to, to hear, and obviously it's not going to be any owners saying it on the record, but it, it'll be, it'll be interesting to kind of take the, the temperature of, of what the other owners think about this. And, you know, has, is this kind of an outlier, uh, you know, exception to prove the rule or, or did Tepper really just overturn the apple cart and, uh, you know, make, uh, hiring head coach is a, a lot more expensive proposition in this league. Because, like you said, yeah, it, 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 you might not be, you may not have them for seven years, but one way or another, you're going to be paying them for seven years. And is that going to be the new normal? You know, next hiring cycle, uh, and and <laughs> and what do his fellow owners think of David Tepper's? You know, kind of in, in essence spending more of their money as a result of what he did with Matt Rule. Here's two last quick ones for you, Joe. What's your gut feeling on the future of Cam Newton? I have thought all along that this was going to be kind of a parting of ways, uh, just with his health, uh, with the finances, and how easily they can get out from under that 
that 19.1 million next year. You know, it, and again, it seems like I mean Matt Rule could do anything he wants. He's got you know he's got these seven years, that, uh, which we just touched on. I, I don't know. I, you know, it, it just seems to me that this if you're going to truly start over and give uh, Matt Rule a clean slate, my, my sense is that it'll be without Cam. But uh, never say never in this business. Do you think it'll be Matt Rule's decision? I feel like it's going to be a collective decision. I, you know, I, David Tepper has has shown in his short time here that that he is not a hands off type of owner. I mean, he was very involved in this in this coaching search. Uh, he's a guy that wants to be informed on on football decisions. You know, he doesn't care about the little ones, obviously, but he he cares about this one a lot, uh, the Cam decision. And so, my feeling is it'll be a collective decision involving Tepper, Matt Rule, and Marty Herney. Joe Person, thanks a lot for the knowledge today. Crazy day in Carolina Panthers history, isn't it? It was a crazy day, and I appreciate you having me on, Peter. And now my conversation with Jane Slater of NFL Network. She has a specialty, the Dallas Cowboys. And the Cowboys were in the news this week. Back on the podcast, very happy to be joined uh, by Jane Slater, NFL Network reporter, ace NFL Network reporter, has done a great job covering the Dallas Cowboys. Very happy to have her on at a very newsy time of the Cowboys and Jane, I guess I'll start with what was your impression of the Mike McCarthy hire? I think it's a good hire. Uh, I think it's in line with what Jerry Jones was sort of telling us he wanted early on. He had gone on one of five through the fan and had said that he wanted a coach with head coaching experience. And you, know, you get a guy with Mike McCarthy who not only has that, but he also has postseason and and, and a Super Bowl, one that he won at AT&T Stadium. I also think he's the type of coach that can finally hold some of these players accountable. I think one of the biggest knocks on Jason Garrett was also one of the biggest pluses. The players loved him. They respected him. But oftentimes, if they weren't getting the answers that they wanted, they would typically go over his head. And I don't know if that helps the team through the years, and we started to see some of that really coming to light in recent years. And so I think Mike McCarthy's the guy that he was coming in with a new voice. He's a guy that you can respect because he's got the skins on the wall, and he's not a guy that's going to take, take it well when one of his players goes over his head and tries to go talk to Stephen or Jerry Jones. And I think that that's something that's important uh, for Jerry and Stephen to establish early on. Do you have a theory about why they took about 16 years to get rid of Jason Garrett? My theory is this. I think, again, one of the things that people knock about Jerry Jones is one of the things I actually appreciate. When he told us post-game after the Bills, uh, do you believe in redemption? Uh, he truly wants to give people every opportunity to not only succeed with his organization, but succeed in life. I mean, we've seen that with players throughout the years. I mean, go go down the list and taking chances on the David Irvings, the 
Randy Gregory, the Rolando McLeans. And while Jason Garrett has certainly never been a problem for him off the field, I think there were, you know, the problems on the field that he tried to help him with. I mean, he tried to give him every opportunity and resource and even saying goodbye to Scott Linehan and giving him the, you know, the young wizard on offense and Kellen Moore, and they just couldn't get it done. And I think there was a possibility. I truly believe this. At the end of the season, when Stephen Jones, who we had reported, had done some back channel legwork on his own, trying to bring another coach here, I think Jerry got cold feet a little bit. And I think he needed an abundance of time, and he needed to apply logic, not emotion, to that decision. And I think it was frustrating for probably people in the building who thought that they needed to move on. The writing was on the wall. He'd been given every chance. Uh, possible, and I even felt like as much as that locker room loves Jason, even they were beginning to think, because this is a young group of guys, that maybe another coach could help them get the win, because I don't think we ever have debated the talent of this roster. I mean, you just ask people around the league, this is a challenging roster. When you start going down some of the things that happened at the end of the year, some of the opportunities that they should have seized, I mean, this was a tough schedule when we looked at it, at the schedule release, but they were playing teams that didn't have their starters. They were playing uh, in outdoor stadiums like Chicago and Philadelphia when they encountered good weather, and they still couldn't capitalize. So you had to start looking at the coach. I looked at that fourth and eighth play uh, in Philadelphia when you didn't have Randall Cobra and Mari Cooper on the field, when you had Tavon Austin uh, and you came out and you, and you got it wrong when you were asked, did he have the option of the fair catch or could he have run it out? Uh, so it, it felt then like you were throwing him under the bus. There were just a bunch of missteps for Jason at the end of the season. And so I thought that he was mulling a lot of this. It's a long way of answering your question, Peter. But I do think that once Stephen had, had gotten to him and they had had that conversation, that they decided to go out there and start looking. I, I While they wanted a head coach with experience, I mean, there weren't a ton of them on the open market. And I kind of joked earlier on another show that I'd done, I feel like Tom Pellicero deserves a cut of Mike McCarthy's contract because he did a brilliant job with him helping Mike McCarthy rebrand himself as Mike McCarthy was telling you what he did this offseason, how him and Jimmy Hazlitt and this team of his got together and said, how can we teach a bunch of old dogs some new tricks? You know, Jerry is very reflective. He talks all the time about being the man that looks in the mirror. I think he appreciates people uh, that are reflective themselves. And I think that was a, a part in that interview when he went into it with Mike McCarthy that knocked his socks off. I think he's the type of guy that always goes back to the drawing board. I think, again, he believes in second chances. And so when Mike McCarthy walks in his room, wants the second chance, and sh was showing you that he was doing the things to get that second chance, that, to me, spoke to who Jerry Jones is. Uh, but I don't believe that Mike McCarthy was ever a front runner. I don't think they even really thought about him until probably two, three weeks ago when the NFL Network piece came out and when they finally decided to move on from Jason Garrett. I ran down every single nugget, and the thing that was so curious to me through all of this, Peter, was there weren't leaks coming out of the organization. There weren't agents talking about their head coach being a front runner. I had talked about Urban Meyer and, and Stephen Jones having that meeting within the last three months, and there being a real interest there. But I thought it was curious that Urban Myers was apparently on everybody's radar. Um, and so I think you have to sort of have a critical eye there to that. Um, and sort, certainly nothing came to fruition for him with Dallas, with New York, or with Carolina, or with the Redskins for that matter. Um, but I do believe that G 
year. He was sort of hanging on to it. And I don't feel like they had a front-runner candidate, and they certainly didn't have a coaching committee like the Redskins did who had done their due diligence and who were ready to pull the trigger when they moved on um, from Callahan in Washington. Yeah, I don't think Urban Meyer, I think that was a little bit of urban legend, quite honestly. (laughs) I don't think he was high on anybody's list, quite honestly. I don't think he was high on Cleveland's list. The Giants really didn't want to consider him. I don't know about Dallas, but he just didn't strike me as a Jerry guy. Um, He struck me as a Steven guy, though. But I agree with you. He didn't strike me as a Jerry guy. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, I think he reminded me a little bit too much about Jimmy Johnson. And I just just don't think Jerry would ever have done that. Who knows? Um, But let let me finish by just asking you, was there... In their meetings, from what you've heard, was there much that Mike McCarthy did or said that you feel was a difference maker with Jerry and Steven? You know, we're going to talk to him at 3 o'clock on Wednesday and and get a better sense of this. You know, to be quite frank, uh, Jerry and Steven played this thing so close to the vest. I mean, the Cowboys are typically an organization you can get a lot of information out of to be quite honest, this one was so curious to me. And I'll tell you, even coaches that are inside that building are in the dark right now. A lot of them haven't even had conversations uh, with Stephen Jones or Mike McCarthy or Jerry Jones. So they are equally in the dark. Uh, There were front office guys that were in the dark. Um, So to have a handle on what Mike McCarthy exactly said that won them over I don't think anybody's been able to to confirm that. I certainly haven't. My sense, though, is just having covered this team, knowing what's important to Jerry, I think it goes back to the guy that looked in the mirror, wanted to do some self-assessment, wanted to improve himself, wanted a a, a shot at redemption. Those are all things that get Jerry Jones going. And I think Mike McCarthy said the right things and did the right things in this offseason, and the timing worked out perfect for both parties. Hey, Jane Slater, really, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much and uh, appreciate your knowledge. Thank you so much, Peter. I appreciate coming on. My thanks to Charlie Weiss, Joe Person, Jane Slater. Tried to get you updated as best as I could on the news of the week. and I really hope you enjoyed the podcast. So we're going to invent a brand new one next week. Who knows who the guests will be? But please tune in and enjoy the divisional round of the playoffs.